This is a re-release of my last podcast, but with better sound quality. Listener Eamon went through the soundtrack of my guest and made some improvements. The overall sound quality, however, is still uh, below what I would like, and for that I apologize. Welcome to The Future Strategist, and today I have a, a different guest from normal. Um, I, my guest is Swedish mathematics professor Ali Hagstrom. Ali, uh, how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Um, uh, obviously, I'm worried about the corona situation, uh, but uh, personally, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Excellent. How and, about you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm in um, rather severe uh, lockdown and isolation. I'm fortunate to have my wife and uh, son with me in my household. So, Ali, yeah. uh, you have been involved in, in the Swedish effort to uh, control the coronavirus, or at least you know a lot about what Sweden has been doing. Is that right? I haven't really been involved in the effort itself, uh, but I've taken uh, part a little bit uh, in the, the, the public debate uh, surrounding it. Okay. So, uh, Ali, you, I know you, you told me you listened to my last podcast with Greg Cochran, and for listeners who haven't, uh, Greg had a very negative view of the Swedish government's uh, efforts on the coronavirus. Uh, Ali, what what do you think? I mean, why don't you summarize like what's going on with the coronavirus in Sweden yes. compared to the the rest of the the West? Yes. So so um, let me first say that I've been listening to several of your podcast episodes oh, thank with you. Greg Cochran, and uh, I've enjoyed them very much, and he was very many good insights. But in the last episode, when we talked about Sweden, I felt he went a little bit off the rails, um, especially when he said that uh, he suggested there was some evil intention behind the, the uh, Swedish authorities' uh, strategy. And uh, I don't think... I'm critical about uh, what they're doing, uh, but, but I think they have uh, good intentions. Okay. So, basically... Uh, there's, there's a dichotomy between, uh, mitigation and suppression, uh, when you set up uh, a strategy to handle the coronavirus. Uh, suppression is when you just try to, uh, minimize, uh, the number of the infected people and keep the damage down. Um, there's, this is sometimes uh, discussed in terms of have you heard of the hammer and the dance? Uh, yes, but why don't you uh, describe it for our yeah. listeners? Yeah, so that's a strategy, strategy which goes kind of in two steps. The hammer is uh, a temporary period of um, very far-reaching um, uh, lockdown uh, and such stuff, uh, where you try to push down the, um, uh, the amount of infection uh, in the population to as low levels as you can. And when it has reached uh, uh, low levels, you can lighten the uh, efforts uh, a bit, but uh, use uh, uh, testing and tracing uh, to, to carefully look out uh, for further breakouts and have a preparation to do um, uh, to interfere with the spread of the virus maybe in uh, geographically um, limited regions uh, and, and, and try to uh, keep it down. So that's the, what we call the dance phase. 
uh, and and uh, you do this. Uh, for, I mean, it's probably unrealistic to get rid of the virus entirely. So you have to uh, keep on the dance until we get in a situation where we have a cure or a vaccine uh, that can stop the virus. So that's the, that's the hammer on the dance or, or the suppression uh, strategy. And this can be contrasted uh, against the mitigation strategy. We sometimes also call it the herd immunity uh, strategy. And this is the one that uh, Swedish uh, authorities are employing. And they start from the assumption that it is not possible to stop the epidemic uh, until such a time where a sufficient proportion of the population has been infected uh, to reach uh, herd immunity. And what's the number for herd immunity? What percent of the population has to get infected? We don't know, but an off-quoted figure is 60%. It could be higher, it could be lower. Um, in, in the simplest models, where you have the basic uh, reproduction number or not, uh, you can you can calculate the, the uh, uh, um, proportion of the population needed uh, for herd immunity. And R naught is the uh, the number of additional persons that uh, one infected person uh, infects uh, on average, and uh, 2.5. Uh, is um, uh, fairly often quoted to the Arnold. It might be higher. But, but Arnold, because 2.5 translates into a herd immunity level of 60%. Now, it's been suggested that uh, by uh, certain heterogeneities in the population, maybe you need a little bit less than that. Maybe people who are particularly social um, uh, tend to get infected early on, and once they are out of the system, you know, bartenders and, and, and people like that, uh, and then the remaining uninfected will be more like, I don't know, stamp collectors, uh, or whoever you think uh, don't need so many people. And, and uh, uh, if you think that has, uh, there, there is some, there's some interesting math in this, uh, and, and if you think that effect is important, then you could hope for the herd immunity level, which is lower, maybe between 40 and 50 percent. Um, but, uh, but the short answer is that we don't know what the level is. But what, what the Swedish authorities think is that, uh, whatever this level is, we're sort of predestined to have that proportion of the population infected. And then it matters a little bit less, uh, to keep the the amount of infection in the population down. Uh, it's not that it doesn't matter at all, because they talk about flattening the curve. We want to uh, keep the, uh, at any moment, uh, keep the amount of infection uh, down uh, to a sufficient, sufficiently low level that uh, our hospitals uh, and, and uh, IVF facilities, uh, they don't get overloaded. Because if that happens, then the uh, death rate uh, of the disease itself uh, will, will become considerably higher and we will get. Right, so the, uh, I, the, the idea would be to slowly get between, I guess, 40 to 80% of the population to get infected, but at a mm -hmm. slow enough rate where everyone who gets infected can get the appropriate medical treatment. 
Yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, if the assumption that uh, it's inevitable that this uh, proportion of the population eventually gets infected, uh, then I, I think a reasonable case can be made that the, the Swedish strategy is is uh, not so uh, terrible. In fact, it might be the smartest um, thing to do. Um, because if you push down the amount of infection harder, then the amount of time that we would have to uh, have to have uh, lockdowns or the kind of semi-lockdown that, that we have in Sweden, uh, we would have to do that for a longer time. And that's a stress on society, not just economically, but it also um, it can be bad for, for, for the general health of the population. You know, like if children can't go to school and so on, that's going to have all sorts of uh, consequences, social uh, and health consequences. Yeah, I guess an analogy is if you're fighting a war and losing is horrible, but you know you're probably going to lose anyway, it is better just to surrender or at least have your strategy be how can losing be the least bad? That's so, right. Rather than trying to fight something where it's just not going to yeah. happen that you're going to win. Yeah. Um, now, the question is, is this assumption really correct that it's inevitable uh, that uh, this large percentage of the population will become infected anyway? And I think that's very unclear. And if you look at some countries that have been really quite successful to, to suppress uh, the, the virus, uh, I mean, early in the epidemic, we talked a lot about South, South Korea, uh, and uh, then there have been claims that, well, their culture is so uh, so different, and people are so much more uh, obedient uh, and, and tolerant of whatever you can just tell them, that this is not going to work in Western uh, uh, cultures like what they have in Western Europe and North America. I don't know. This, this is not clear. But now, it seems like New Zealand has uh, has done uh, the same thing. Yeah. Um, and isn't my impression of Sweden, and forgive me for going to stereotypes, is huh? that you all are much more on average obedient than people in the United States, that Swedes are more willing to follow government rules. That's, that the, that's the rhetoric. Uh, I'm... I'm not a sociologist. Uh, I don't have the expertise to really, uh, really judge this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you visited me in Sweden uh, yeah. years ago. Uh, did you did you get this impression? Oh. I mean, I hung out mostly with right academics, and we're kind huh? of weird. But yeah, I mean, it, it certainly you know seems well, law by study. But again, my my view is very biased. I think. Yeah. You probably didn't encounter uh, a representative uh, cross uh, selection. I mean, I guess one way is you know you're you're a professor. I mean, do hmm? students are they good at following rules? Will they turn things? I mean, do you have to put effort into making sure people turn things in on time? I think I'm personally better than most of my colleagues at making the students understand that if they don't have things in on time. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to accept delays and just uh, drop out of the course. Um, 
Right. I mean, uh, be, being a university professor is, is, a, is a constant struggle uh, in motivating your students to, to do hard work. Yes, um, I, I agree. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so actually, when I when I uh, lecture to my students, uh, I don't think of that in terms of they are going to learn a lot in this very moment. But uh, I think of it more as a way of trying to get them interested in, in enough to, to open their books. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know, but it's certainly a very big part of the rhetoric around the Swedish strategy that we can, uh, we can make all these uh, measures against the virus uh, non-obligatory. Uh, it, it suffices to uh, tell Swedes that uh, work from home if you can, and so forth. Don't uh, socialize in, uh, in unnecessary large groups, uh, and so on. Wash your hands. Uh, but, but, but we have very little uh, strict uh, regulations on that. And I think there's a certain uh, a certain amount of national pride have evolved around this idea that, that Swedes can do the right thing without the threat that, uh, that uh, a strict piece of legislation uh, amounts to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but you're still, I mean, I could imagine a strategy of, you know, of suppression and we don't need laws because we can trust our people. But you guys, if you are going for herd immunity, that's that's very different. That's just we're going mm-hmm. slowly towards it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what I think, um, what I object most strongly against is not this herd immunity strategy itself. Although, if I had, if I was personally in charge, I would probably. Uh, uh, opt for suppression for, for, for various reasons, including coordination with, with the rest of the world, because uh, our European neighbors uh, are doing uh, so much better than us at the moment. And this is causing tension. When, uh, when, uh, for instance, uh, Denmark and Norway and Finland, they open up the borders uh, towards each other, but they are keeping the borders. Against Sweden closed, which I think is a very reasonable thing for them to do because we have like an order of magnitude more virus than they have, so they should uh, take the risk of having open borders to Sweden. But but, uh, uh, Swedes get offended by this, uh, and they can't understand how the Norwegians can be so bad to us and so on, and and so all sorts of things like, look, we have. Uh, regional and homogeneity in Sweden, you know, uh, we have had Stockholm for a long time as, as the epicenter of, uh, of uh, the, the virus in Sweden, but there are other regions that uh, have much less uh, uh, smaller amounts of, of, the, of the population. In uh, so why can't those uh, regions be open? Yeah, that's a lot more complicated though than just that's a lot people. It's, it's a lot to ask uh, from, from your friendly neighbors uh, to take uh, those things into account. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, 
given the examples of New Zealand and, and Iceland, I think are, are also very close to just having gotten rid of the virus. Uh, those are both island states, but it's hard to believe that it's that critical to be an island. I mean, you still have borders, uh, and, and, and most of the dynamic of every uh, epidemic uh, happens uh, happens inside. I don't know, but I, I think that it would be worth a shot to try and hit hard uh, with the hammer. Now, but but but, but uh, this was again a digression. I was going to say that my main complaint about the choice of strategy is that we never really had a discussion, an, an open political discussion about this, which I think may be the most important political decision that we've had in, in many years since we did. How should we handle the pandemic? And, uh, and the government, uh, together with the Swedish Public Health Agency, have somehow managed to uh, avoid uh, having this uh, discussion take place at all. Um, we, we have uh, uh, we have this uh, state epidemiologist, Anders uh at, at the Swedish Public Health Agency, uh, who always downplays when, whenever someone brings up, up the this uh, fundamental question about these two possible strategies, integration versus suppression. We downplace the difference in the sense that everybody's really trying to do the same thing, and so on. That's not really a tenable position anymore. I mean, clearly New Zealand is not going for herd immunity. Yes, but, but uh, what he says uh, to that is that, well, you know, the important thing is, is not uh, that... Uh, uh, but, I mean, New Zealand is doing well now, and uh, we uh, uh, we'll see what happens in the long run. That's oh. the constant answer. Yeah, but that's of course a general all-purpose excuse to any government policy. It's like, well, our yes. policy isn't doing well, but in the long run, don't worry, uh, uh, we'll be doing just as well as everybody else. That that's always something you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when one might hope could happen is that, I mean, the, the, uh, the number of daily deaths in Sweden is slowly going down. And, uh, so, so the amount of infection that is decreasing in the population. And perhaps, uh, at some point, the authorities will discover that, well, it's, maybe it's easier to keep this down than, than before. And, and maybe we'll just, uh, try and push this on. If you're really doing the herd immunity thing, uh, then, uh, then you should be worried that infection is going down because that's going to be uh, a severe delay of the whole uh, process. That's uh, true. You should want to have infection rates so that your hospitals are almost fully utilized. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, for this reason, uh, or, 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 or let me put it this way. Uh, so that's for a fully rational agent who has decided on the herd immunity strategy. That would be the way forward. But that's something that they don't want to talk about in those terms. Uh, because it's a very hard sell to the yeah. topic. Uh, 
that uh, in some situations uh, it would be a good idea to, to uh, let the values loose uh, a little bit. Um, no. So, so they don't want to, to say that. Uh, and uh, I, I think also it, it, it's not just that the popularity would go down. It's also the case that if the general public understands the herd immunity strategy, uh, then they will be less inclined to follow the recommendations from the authorities because they realize that, oh, I'm probably going to be getting infected anyway in the long run, so why should I bother to take these measures? Maybe it's better to get infected early on than infected later because once I'm infected and immune, uh, I can, uh, uh, I don't have to worry anymore about that. Yeah. What's the impression the Swedish government has of the death rate from people who get infected? Uh, the infected fatality rate? Yes. They talk very little about this. Um, in fact, I don't think that, that the uh, public health authority never mentioned uh, a specific number of this. You can get some indirect clues uh, from other things they say, like they've made projections about uh, how many hospital beds they will be needing over time, and, and, and you combine that with the ideas they have had about when they're going to be reached and so on and so forth, and, and you can derive numbers in the order of maybe 0.1% or 0.2%. And uh, they have uh, this uh, former uh, uh, state epidemiologist, uh, Johan Giesecke, who is more outspoken. He's now retired. Uh, he has worked a little bit uh, with the public health agency on a consultancy basis. But, but he, he is the... Um, He's the kind of personality that we sometimes see in a professor emeritus who thinks that, well, now that I'm retired, I can say whatever I want, and I don't have much responsibility, and so on. So he's much, much uh, unspoken. And, and, and he's also quite a personality. Uh, uh, and, uh, like, he speaks with charisma, and, and, and uh, people tend to, to agree what he says. And he has talked uh, explicitly about uh, an infected fatality rate of 0.1%. 0.1%. Uh, and I, my yeah. understanding from talking with Greg is the actual fatality, infected fatality rate for you know uh, Western countries is more like 1.2%. Yeah, that might be a little high, but, but uh, if you... Uh, if you look at, they had a big, uh, survey in Spain. Right, right. That's where, where it comes the, from. Yeah, uh, where they landed in the, so that, but that could be particularly bad. There's no reason to expect this to be the same number, uh, in every country. In every region. Yeah, exactly. Especially with different age populations. Though in South Korea, it was higher. I think it was like two point something percent. But that's, so, you know, Point one, they're off by a factor of yeah. ten. That's yeah. really, really bad. I mean, yeah. you're doing trade-offs that you get one side off by a factor of ten, and then you don't talk about the numbers. I mean, that's a reason right. why you 
you're right for the debate. I mean, you want to have a debate because then you're forced to actually give numbers and you're forced to not have this implicit number that's really awful. Yes. That's pretty unforgivable. Yeah. And in, in this choice between mitigation and suppression, uh, I think that a, a key quantity uh, that, that you need to know in order to make the right decision is the infected fatality rate. Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, the higher uh, this rate is, the, the more uh, reason you have to try to suppress. Definitely. And this is this is for two reasons. First of all, the herd immunity strategy uh, will be more costly in terms of the number of lives, uh, the higher death rate is. But also, uh, the, 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 the higher the death rate is, uh, the less uh, uh, is the amount of undetected uh, infection in the population. Uh, so, so uh, maybe it's easier to explain this in the, in the other way around. So, the death rate to be really low, uh, you need to have uh, a lot more uh, infection in the population uh, than has uh, already been detected. Uh, right. Through tests uh, and so on, and uh, uh, in that case, uh, one could say that that suggests that the infection spreads more easily than before, and it's going to be just too hard to suppress it. So you should go to mitigation. Uh, but when this turns out not to be the case, uh, and, and and we get more and more uh, indications of that when we uh, uh, do. Uh, testing. We don't have this really, really good survey yet with a representative part of the population, but, but it seems that a lot smaller proportion of the population has been infected than the public health agency uh, expected. And that uh, speaks in, in favor of uh, a high IVF, uh, uh, sorry, a high IVF. Uh, not just in Spain, but also in Spain. Mm. This 0.1% thing is, is from, from what, uh, uh, an interview that uh, Johan Wieseke did uh, in April. So maybe he has uh, uh, had time to change uh, his mind, but we've seen relatively little uh, signs uh, of the public health uh, agency um, Changing towards uh, something that could be interpreted as a, as a suppression strategy. Now, I mean, this but is they are, they are deliberately unclear about this. And I mean, is there a movement in Sweden just to get rid of the government? To you know, I mean, this seems such a horrible mistake yeah. just to shout at them. You know, go away, leave public life. Is that? I don't know. I mean. I don't think it's clear yet that it is a mistake. Uh, but, but I think that when we weigh uh, risks uh, against each other, if I would do this way, I would uh, probably go for uh, change strategy towards uh, suppression. But the, the general public uh, is, is rather unaware uh, of this dichotomy uh, between strategies. And they think that the basic question when it comes to strategy 
is more uh, uh, on the what I would call the, the tactical level. What exactly, what sorts of regulations or recommendations uh, should be uh, should be given? Should we ask people to have masks when they go shopping or other ones go outdoors? So far, there have been no such recommendations. Uh, or what should we do about school closures and such things? I don't think that, that they avoid the, the fundamental uh, uh, strategy issue by, by focusing on these smaller issues. Okay. Are people wearing masks in, in large cities in Sweden when they're just no. indoors? Uh, no, very few people do that. Now, uh, I haven't visited Stockholm since uh, early March, so I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but, but uh, when they give, uh, um, what I see on television does, doesn't suggest that, that more than a very small fraction of the population is wearing masks. Now, an argument for, you know, suppressing as long as you can, even if it's hopeless, even if you're going to hit herd immunity, is that we're getting better and better treatments. Yes. And so if we're destined for herd immunity better in six months than six weeks, is mm -hmm. that something that they're taking into account or addressing in Sweden? It has come up in the debate, uh, rarely, uh, but, but it's, I don't see any signs that, uh, that the, the government or the public health uh, agency give any particular weight uh, to that argument. Okay, and then I guess another point is: Are you are you all making a particular effort to protect senior citizens? I mean, we yes. Can... Okay, but but uh, it's not working very well uh, because uh, we have. Uh, I mean. So first of all, we have this cutoff of, of uh, 70 years, where if, if you past 70, you're automatically uh, classified as a low-injury risk group. And uh, the recommendations for risk groups are, are uh, much stricter than the recommendations for, for the population at large. Uh, but of course, there are many very Healthy people between 17 and 18 and so on. But if you look at the, the even more elderly, the, the sick elderly, they tend to live in the residential homes, uh, and uh, these residential homes have been hit very hard, especially in the Stockholm area, uh, by the infection. Uh, and uh, when our state epidemiologist and Mr. talks about this. He says that this, this is of course a failure, uh, but uh, he denies that this is a failure uh, of the uh, strategy employed by the public health agency and the, and the government. It's a failure of the uh, system for elderly care that we have. And I think that that kind of misses the point. I think that we should stand up and take responsibility for this because uh, when when the public health agency devises a strategy for Sweden, then they should take into account whatever 
resources and capabilities that, that we have at the residential homes. And if, if they are incapable of, of stopping the virus uh, from, from uh, getting in, then uh, that's, uh, that should be a part of the prerequisites for, for the structures of, of overall strategy. Yeah, de- what, so definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the elderly who are not very healthy, they need to get health care from younger people. Yes. And if you're not going to stop the spread from younger people, I mean, that's a really tough thing to say, well, we'll let virus spread among our younger population, but not our older population, when there has to be contact. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, when you have contact, you can minimize the spread by having protective equipment. But we have shortages of protective equipment. As I assume you've been having. Oh yeah, we, we really messed up on that, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what Understood Mel says is that, well, we, I mean, uh, we don't see what, uh, what we could have done better to better protect these residential homes. And, and by saying that is overlooking the obvious thing, namely, if you have stricter, uh, general restrictions, uh, in society, yeah. uh, then, then the, uh, overall amount, uh, of, of virus is going to go down in society, and then a smaller amount will reach the residential homes. Right, exactly. But it, but it's like, he's pretending that that is not a possibility, uh, and he's getting away with it to a large extent. Very few people, uh, question this, uh, this reasoning. Yeah, that's awful. I, what do you think of the thesis that our, our political class in both of our countries aren't really capable of thinking even in terms of simple math and their journalists can't think in terms of simple math and most voters can't. And that's a big part of what's going on that they you know, the idea of the difference between a 1.2% fatality rate and a 0.1% rate, they both, they kind of sound the same to most people. So, you know, that's not a big deal. They're not capable of making these rational trade-offs in their mind. And that's this a big is, part of the failure. Right. This is uh, absolutely uh, a problem. Um, and uh, if you look at this on a different level, I mean, uh, understood no longer people at the public health agency, they certainly uh, know how to juggle with percentages. So and so on. But it seems that uh, they have been very, very reluctant uh, to uh, do anything with uh, any advanced mathematical model and simulation. And uh, when they, they released the report, I think it was in late March, when they made predictions about the how, how much uh, hospital resources would be needed for handling the epidemic as a function of time and, and different for different regions in Sweden. Uh, in this report, uh, they said explicitly that uh, we are only modeling uh, the so-called uh, clinical cases, the cases that uh, uh, come to the knowledge of the healthcare system. Basically people who are tested for that thing. They are not explicitly not modeling the total amount of uh, infection 
uh, in the population. And I think that when you're not doing that, how can you possibly, uh, at least for me as a mathematician, it seems very unlikely uh, that, that we can obtain uh, good reasons, uh, good arguments for your prediction. Uh, yeah. when, you, when you don't include that in the model. Yeah, for an infectious disease, that's kind of crazy to not take into account mm-hmm. everyone who could transmit mm-hmm. the disease. They, they, are, they have very low amount of transparency uh, at the public health agency, despite having uh, daily press conferences, uh, but partly because of this as you suggested, a low level of uh, mathematical numeracy among among journalists and so on. These press conferences do not typically lead to to very much insight. What I would have liked to see is is, uh, for for the public health agency to deliver written reports uh, where they clearly put down uh, how they're thinking. Uh, in terms of how the epidemic is spreading and so on. But, but we don't get to see any such report. So any, any, anything I say about the uh, internal thinking at the public health agency is, is going to have to be conjectural. But it seems to me that they are dominated by a culture which hasn't picked up on uh, computation or mathematical modeling of contagious disease. Rather, they they have for them it's maybe a bit less of a science than just a, a craft picked up by generations of epidemiologists who just get a feel of what you can do based on how things turned out earlier in place epidemics. I think so. I think, I mean, I, I understand that biology is kind of the science you go into if you don't like math. Hmm. And that might be what's happening. I'm sure there's some epidemiologists who are good at math, but my guess is you don't need to be that good at math to get into the field, at least compared to being, well, obviously a mathematician like you or even an economist like me. And it just, Probably poisons the discipline. Uh, poisoning is, is, a, is a very strong word, but uh, yeah, but I do, I do think that uh, <laughs> uh, biology and medicine would benefit uh, from an influx of researchers with a higher level. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's. I, I mean, I wonder. Do do you think? You know, if the if the death toll in Sweden ends up being vastly higher than in neighboring countries, there'll be some political price to pay. Um, so well, the government in Sweden is currently they have very good polling numbers, uh, but I think that's the kind of thing that typically happens in a crisis uh, where uh, things don't go totally wrong. And, and somehow uh, the, the government uh, and the public health agency have managed to uh, 
to convey the message that it's, it's all going uh, uh, reasonably well. We should be able to protect the elderly a little bit better, but other than that, things are mostly fine, and we have uh, higher uh, higher death rates than we need in countries, but it ain't over to each other. And uh, the more that the neighbors uh, suppress the infection now, the worse will they be hit uh, by um, the second wave, uh, and so on. That's the kind of thing we are suggesting. And uh, we hear this a lot. Uh, this event over to its own electricity is really quite widespread in defense of, of the Swedish uh, um, corona strategy. Okay, I, that seemed, I mean, I guess, it, yeah, if they're right, then they're following a reasonable policy, but there's just a lot of reasons to think that might not be, mm. especially given, I mean, work on a vaccine. I mean, we're, you know, we don't know how long it's going to take, but it, we could easily get a vaccine in the next year. We could get much more effective treatments. It's, you know. This could happen, uh, and uh, uh, there are, for instance, uh, uh, an effort uh, uh, with a collaboration between uh, Oxford University and uh, AstraZeneca, uh, which they say looks very promising and things work out well, then we could start delivering the vaccine right in the fall. But I guess that I mean, uh, the default gesture should be that that's to work out. But there are Many efforts, and uh, I think that we should. I mean, if you draw a parallel to 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 the issue of artificial general intelligence that uh, that you and I uh, are interested in, uh, I think that the epistemically correct thing to say about that is that when will it happen? We don't know, but we should be prepared for anything really. Right. And I think that. Uh, when we think about strategies for handling the coronavirus, we should be likewise open to uh, how difficult it is to actually get a vaccine. Yeah, and this is the the value of putting actual guesses, right? I mean, it's crazy to guess what's the probability of a vaccine, but you would need at least need to implicitly factor that in to whether it's worth trying to suppress as long as you can. Because if you don't do it uh, explicitly, uh, there's going to be implicit ideas about that lurking in the unconscious in, in the devices that we do. That's not better. It's better to bring up all the crucial considerations that we can think of to the surface. Definitely. And even if some of us say, but how could we possibly put a number on? Well, we know some numbers are better. We know 50% is a better guess than 99%, and 50% is a better guess than one in a million. So you, you don't know nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, we need to incorporate that in. And as you said, if you don't, this isn't a case where we can ignore it. We can't ignore the probability. Any, any trade-offs we make has to at least implicitly take into account the probability of getting back a vaccine in you know, the next six months or year. Mm-hmm. And to, I mean, I get politicians don't want to have to make uncomfortable trade-offs, but you know, the the job of epidemiologists and professors and public intellectuals should be to force them to. 
to ask mm. the questions, and you know, we're yes. not. Yeah. It's a huge failure. This touches upon another aspect of the Swedish strategy. Namely, they said very early on uh, that uh, we will only uh, take measures against the virus uh, that have uh, uh, a solid scientific foundation. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, solid scientific foundation uh, can, can mean uh, many things, uh, but I like to think of this in terms of, you know, this um, Popperian idea of, of uh, uh, with one hypothesis and we try to falsify them and uh, maybe uh, a hypothesis stands for a while and, and then eventually we have to refine them to account for the data and then we have a new hypothesis and, and, and we try to falsify that and so on and so forth. Sure. So that's so, the, yeah. yeah, so that's like when you test a medicine, you, you do the yeah. double bl- blind study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's a really uh, good uh, framework uh, for guaranteeing uh, that um, that is slowly but steadily zooming uh, closer to to the truth about what the world is doing now. Right. It's not it's not a total guarantee. Uh, was it Einstein who, who said at some point that subtle is the Lord, but malicious is not? Well, if, if God is malicious and, and have, has set up the universe in order to drastically fool us, then, then the, the preparing scheme is not going to work. But, but other than that, I think it's a it's a very good scheme for, for eventually getting closer to the truth. But it's not a very good tool when you have to make urgent decisions. Um, so, so a, a typical example here is uh, whether or not to recommend face masks. Right. And and uh, the opinion of the Swedish Public Health Agency is that the the science uh, on face masks uh, is unclear. We haven't established uh, uh, definitely that they're effective uh, because. I mean, one thing, there are very few um, uh, randomized uh, controlled studies, which is the kind of thing that you want uh, in clinical studies to get the best kind of evidence. You have to rely on um, uh, shaking observation data. Uh, but, but, so in the, in the preparing scheme, uh, you just Treat the, the null hypothesis that, uh, that uh, these uh, masks have seen effect as the truth until that has been incontrovertibly overruled. And I think that that's the wrong approach when you're dealing with urgent decisions with large consequences. Then you have to be able to deal with the uh, uncertainty. And it's very biased to, to, to have put this just declare the masks to, to be um, uh, useless uh, when the evidential situation is uh, is quite uncertain and, and uh, the way I see it when I try to get an overall picture of it is that there's actually quite a lot pointing towards 
yes. I mean, I guess the extreme case is this is like, you know, when you jump out of an airplane, does having a parachute help? Don't want, well, we haven't done a randomized controlled experiment, so I guess the null hypothesis is it doesn't help. Right. That's um, not the right way to think it? about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's the kind of situation where it's obviously crazy uh, to, to require um, this type of gold standard randomized controlled studies in order to accept them that an intervention works. And I think that to some extent we are in the same situation with the masks because I mean the mechanics of how the masks make is very, very reasonable. And and uh, when you look at studies about how how the water droplets move in, in, in the air around you even you sneeze, makes a huge difference when you have masks. So all these kinds of Plausibility considerations suggest that masks do have an effect. Um, so that's one example of something that we won't touch based on this. I think, I, I think that the Popperian uh, idea has a lot saying for it, but, but I, I think that uh, it's being, being overly rigid about it in a crisis situation is not a good idea. I think they are being overly rigid. Something slightly analogous happened in the early stages of the epidemic, where they, so like in early March, uh, there was an interview with Johan uh, Carlson, who is uh, head of the public health agency, and he was asked uh, what's the worst case scenario uh, for um, how, how what fraction of the Swedish population would be hit by the epidemic? And at that point, we had very little, uh, probably internal uh, spread in Sweden had started, but it had not yet been detected. This was like March 3rd or something like that. And uh, he so for him, the null hypothesis is that Sweden won't be affected at all. Uh, but, but when asked for a worst case scenario, he looked at, he pointed to what are the regions in the world where we have the largest uh, percentage of the population uh, infected, and clinically infected, the white tested and so on. That gives you very low numbers. Um, 0.1%, 0.15% or something. He pointed to, to the Hubei region in China uh, and the uh, Lombardy region in Northern Italy as examples uh, reaching uh, these numbers. And, and he took this as the worst case for Sweden, which I think is, uh, uh, that is just crazy. And I think it can only be explained by uh, having this inflexibility of going from the preparing framework to uh, the kind of thinking where you, uh, you think in a more basic style and you really accept certainties. Yeah, uh, or, or doing what's called taking the outside view where you look at historical examples that are similar, like the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. You know, that's... 
what was particularly embarrassing at this time point in early March is that the uh, corresponding officials in Denmark and in Norway had been asked, what do you think is the worst case scenario? And one of them said 10 to 15 percent of the population being hit by the virus, and the other said 25 percent of them. And compared to that, the point one, I mean, it's easy to say in retrospect that 25 percent is silly, but I, I thought, oh, you can check my blog if you have, I noted already at that point that that was just a, a crazy idea of what you mean by the worst case scenario. It also doesn't make theoretical sense. I mean, you could see how it infects nobody or 10 people and they're isolated, but 0.1%, that's a lot of people. How do they then stop it from getting to the rest? Huh? That just doesn't theoretically, if it's an infectious disease with an R0 above one. And then you have to also ask, like, why, you know, back then, why is China going crazy and shutting down their economy and welding people into the apartment buildings? That's, they know the most about it. They're terrified. They're either gone insane or we need to be really scared of this. So that was, uh, that was very odd and contributed uh, to my limited faith that that they have uh, the kind of confidence, the kind of competence. Have you thought of like being more politically active? And I don't know what you, I don't know the Swedish political situation that well, but you know, starting a, I don't think can recall your leaders or having an early election or something. Uh, So that would be. A drastic uh, step, uh, and uh, there was a call from our uh, populist writing uh, party, the Sweden Democrats, not for the prime minister to step down, but for the state epidemiologist um, understood uh, to step down. Um, what I've been doing personally is trying to, I had an uh, op-ed in the foremost Swedish newspaper, Danish uh, Nyheter, on April 30th, uh, together with uh, four uh, Swedish uh, colleagues, uh, where we lay down the basics of this uh, strategy uh, and, and ask for framing uh, the strategy question in terms of this. And we had a follow-up of, uh, in, in, in May 5th, I think, in the same uh, And uh, I think we influenced the debate a little bit. Uh, we see a little bit more awareness uh, among other participants in the debate about this strategy dichotomy. But it doesn't seem that so far we've had any influence in the actual policy carried out. I, I know this is going to sound weird, but Greg is, thinks the Swedish strategy will be revealed as being so horrible that there's a chance of, you know, a revolution or military coup or something. At least I think, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think he thinks it's that bad. Does that seem... Uh, 
I give very little credence uh, uh, to uh, We don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it's more likely that uh, as we see, if we keep seeing this discrepancy between the death rates uh, in Sweden and in, in Norwegian countries, this goes on, and I think the pressure uh, will build up uh, uh, taking uh, harder efforts uh, against the virus and uh, headed on the government and the public health agency will change strategy. But uh, on the other hand, people also, just like in the US, people are generally happy with, with uh, being under lockdown uh, conditions. And even though we don't really have a lockdown in Sweden, we still have um, recommendations that uh, prevent us from carrying out our lives as usual and having no reason to do. And uh, in the long run, uh, I think people are getting more and more tired of this. And that's another argument uh, by the public health agency for having these relatively light restrictions, is that they believe uh, lighter restrictions to be more sustainable. If you ask too much uh, from the um, uh, from people, uh, then they will eventually uh, revolt. Yeah, and that is literally happening in the United States right now. I don't know if you Volt is the right word, but there's, I'm sure you know, we're in the midst of protests and riots. Yes. And, it's and the riots uh, are mainly about uh, racial issues. Um, but, but I would guess that th- this is not entirely unrelated to, to the, uh, the timing of the riots. It's probably not unrelated to, to the virus. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't know for sure, but I guess that's right. And then, of course, you have riots over the same thing in England and Australia, and it's weird they're rioting in England over police misconduct in yes. Minnesota. We've One had this in Sweden, too. The, had, the, the, yes, each of the three largest cities of Sweden, uh, Stockholm, Gothenburg, and Malmö, have each had not really riots. We had some, there was some vandalism in Gothenburg, but, but uh, rallies uh, in support of uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, in in um, Minnesota. That just strikes me as so weird that you would place that importance on what happens in the United States. Yeah, but they say the United States is just an example, and it's uh, you know, racism, uh, it's, it's a global phenomenon. But the... If you want real bad examples of racism, you don't look to the United States. I mean, there's other countries where it's just so much worse. Yeah, but uh, the United States, have, ever since after the Second World War, has been an enormous cultural influence uh, on, on Europe and Sweden in particular. So what happens in the U.S. is... is very much on our radar is disproportionate. Well, that's too bad for you all all in our culture. <laughs> yes. So so these rallies uh, in Stockholm happened in the moment. Uh, we have this this strict rule actually legislation against 
meeting more than uh, 50 people from the bank. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, in each case, the organizers of the rally applied to have a rally, uh, and uh, this, the right uh, to, to do such demonstrations is, is very strongly protected by Swedish law, but uh, they got the permission uh, conditional and not exceeding this 50 person limit. Uh, but in each of these cases, uh, the actual number turned out to be thousands. And when that happened, police intervened and things more or less smoothly, but only after the number of participants have so far, so much exceeded this Yeah, I know. It's just shocking. I mean, it's awful that's happening. I mean, I understand the reasons for the protests, but you know, why now? Why? And yeah. you know, I, I mean, hopefully, it's really hard to transmit this when you're outside, so there won't be a massive cost in lives of these protests. But we'll see. We don't know. Yeah, we will see. Yes. Uh, are you following the daily figures for the death counts in the U.S.? Uh, no, not not as closely as I really should be. What have you been following them? Uh, uh, yeah, but I don't quite remember. But, but uh, actually, Sweden and the United States are fairly close uh, in terms of the uh, number of deaths per day. You mean close per capita or close so, in terms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So close per capita. Okay. Which the absolute numbers in the U.S. is uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and Sweden sort of stand out compared to other Western countries. And, and in fact, throughout most of the pandemic, uh, Sweden has had higher death counts per capita than the United States. So our cumulative death count is, is still uh, uh, exceeds the American. Not not by a huge amount, but uh, so one could argue that the situation is worse in Sweden uh, in terms of these pure statistics. Yet I somehow have the feeling I feel safer in, in Sweden than in the United States because there's it, uh, I don't get the impression that that the uh, U.S. government is, government is, is in control of the situation. Well, I mean, we have a federal system. I mean, we're so big that the federal mm -hmm. government can't really micromanage what happens in different cities. So it's it's kind of up to the governors and then even the mayors. Mm -hmm. We don't have the federal government, the state capacity for it to create reasonable rules for every jurisdiction. You um. Do you want to, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about AGI. Do you want to say more about COVID or do you want to move to um, artificial general intelligence? First, I, I think when I talked about uh, this this case uh, of the public health agency doing Carlson's uh, weird uh, estimate of what the worst case scenario would be, I think that's somehow analogous uh, to the fairly widespread 
uh, idea among uh, AI researchers and others uh, that uh, AGI is, should not be on the radar at all. It's just uh, yeah. it's impossible. Let me just, sorry, let me just provide a brief introduction for people who've just been listening to me about COVID. That Ollie and I are both people who think that, uh, we might not be that far away from creating computer superintelligence. And unfortunately, the default is likely to be that the computer superintelligence destroys us. It might not, but that's, we think a lot of types of computer superintelligences would exterminate our species and this, we're kind of worried about this. Yes, and the basic reason for why uh, destruction is the default outcome is that unless we're extremely uh, careful uh, about um, inserting the exact right um, uh, optimization criteria for this superintelligent AI, uh, it's it's very likely to be uh, disaligned uh, with uh, stuff that. Uh, the humans value, yeah, human rights, and so on. So it's much, much more likely that people will do something that's really stupid and foreign to us. Yeah, a simple analogy is, you know, if you imagine a computer superintelligence could rearrange the molecules in our solar system any way it wanted to, for most of those arrangements, we don't exist. A small number, it's great, it's utopia, but the vast majority, and, and, you know, we've got a really create a supernova, we've got to make sure that it does kind of exactly what we want, because a random arrangement of molecules in our universe, that's we're gone. Extraordinarily high probability. And and, uh, just like Johan Carlson when he noted that we haven't yet seen uh, the uh, COVID-19 epidemic hit substantial proportions of the population, we can just count on that not happening because it hasn't happened up to now. And this is, I think, closely analogous to what uh, many people debating AI safety say, meaning that, well, we haven't created artificial superintelligence uh, up to now. So there's no reason to expect that it will happen in the future. Right. And uh, this, this so much uh, ignores uh, the, the fact that uh, uh, technology is, is moving forward, and uh, especially in artificial intelligence, has been moving forward very, very rapidly in recent years. And uh, yeah. mm-hmm. also, this has to do with, with like what your baseline belief is. Uh, if you if you're a preparing you just ignore any idea about putting percentages to your belief and just declare that the null hypothesis is that uh, no superintelligence is ever going to be created and it's up to those who think uh, that it can happen to try and falsify that and then ways can actually create this, this uh, superintelligence. Uh, whereas if you accept that we need to think uh, and embrace uncertainty and, and need to handle that. Uh, I think that a more balanced position will I mean, one obvious fact is that the human brain is very powerful, optimal in, in uh, achieving the uh, greatest amount of intelligence between the nuclear and so on. So, uh, there's certainly arrangements of matter that achieve this much, much, much more efficiently 
And the question is then, uh, will we be able to figure out uh, what some of these you know, efficient arrangements are going to be? If we do that, then we have created efficiency components. And and I think that one, I mean, a, a reasonable starting point is to say that that maybe a 50-50 chance that we'll be able to do this in the next hundred years or something like that. And then you can modify your probabilities from that uh, depending on the various weak sources of evidence that we have. But just starting from, from declaring that this is not going to happen and waiting for falsification is just uh, it, it robs us of, of the capacity for foresight, which is crucially needed here because once we have super intelligence, uh, it's probably going to be too late to do anything about it. Yeah, exactly. And the argument for that is, you know, a, a super intelligence will have a lot of power over us if it wants to. Mm-hmm. So when, once we create a super intelligence, our fate is in its hands. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to first create a super intelligence, then figure out how dangerous it is. It's, it's too late. That's infeasible. So trial and error, I think, has has served humanity fairly well uh, over the um, development of of the uh, civilization up to now. But uh, there's a point where the risks uh, get so huge that uh, um, that trial and error isn't going to work anymore. And, and this is not just for artificial intelligence. We have bio-risk as well. Uh, and uh, uh, so there are questions about what will we learn from the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, to help us better prepare for the next pandemic. And the next pandemic, it, I mean, it is just as likely to um, uh, artificial uh, virus uh, yeah, that's what's uh, really scary is that it's uh, getting easier and easier to edit genes. What if we get to the point where a single college student could exterminate 99% of humanity through creating uh, some virus? Well, there's going to be one college student who's really depressed and hates everybody. Uh, we don't survive that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, if every human could make an atomic bomb, we're gone. Uh, but you know, if a million is, humans could make atomic bomb, we're probably also gone. What if a million humans could make this killer virus? That's yeah. that could be our future. This could be our future, and uh, uh, I think this is the key idea in um, Nick Bostrom's vulnerable world hypothesis paper, which came out about how. How advances uh, in science and technology is like in urn where you pick out balls and you don't know what the consequences will be of each each ball represents uh, a scientific factor. And if there are balls in this urn which uh, amount to destruction of humanity through some of the mechanisms you can suggesting uh, then uh, we should we need to think at this point very, very carefully about how we handle this or how can we do that. So, uh, I've been thinking a little bit, and I know others have been too, about whether our prospects as a civilization might improve uh, 
from uh, going through this COVID-19 crisis because there will, might be a broader realization that we should uh, better prepare for the unexpected. Um, I don't know. It's it's unclear whether we will have the wisdom to, to pick up on, on that. I had uh, a, a panel discussion with uh, uh, John Tallinn a few weeks ago where I suggested that it would be a bad thing if what we take away from the COVID-19 pandemic is that we ought to become better prepared uh, for uh, pandemics with an R-naught of about 2.5 and, uh, and uh, a fatality rate of 1%. I think that would be much, much too narrow uh, lesson to learn because it could be very much worse pandemics. Right. And, and Jan responded by saying, yes, I agree with you, but I think that there's a risk that, in fact, we'll learn an even narrower lesson. Maybe the lesson will just be watch out for things coming out of Wuhan. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's our main risk. Yeah. Next so what I'm, what I'm hoping, and, and maybe uh, people like you and me can contribute to it uh, by... Uh, engaging in public discussion is to, for, for the lesson from the pandemic to become a broader. Uh, so in the big scheme of things, uh, the COVID-19 crisis is, is a relatively mild thing uh, and also relatively foreseeable. We more or less knew that on the time scale of decades we will be hit by something like this. So right. And we were fairly, in most countries, we were fairly unprepared. I heard that in, in East Asia, there were countries like Taiwan and South Korea that were much, much better prepared because they were hit harder by, by the source epidemic. Uh, yeah. But, but in, in our parts of the world, the preparedness had been shockingly bad, uh, given I, that this was really to be expected. Now, how can we raise, yeah? Yeah, so I, so I think one way we could prepare, we're not quite there yet, but we might be in a few years, is with drone deliveries. If we, if we have, you know, you can deliver things to people's homes with drones and the government stockpiles a whole bunch of food and medicines, we might be in a situation where we could say no one is allowed to leave their residence for the next yeah. month and that's feasible. Yeah. And that, that would, that would, you know, be enough to stop a virus. Yeah. Much higher are not absent everyone staying home. That's a that's a an interesting suggestion. If I can just spontaneously play the devil's advocate, sure, sure. I would say that drone technology has its own problems, and uh, I think I, I, it's hard for me to imagine how we could. Uh, Design uh, software for a drone for delivering food packages that could not easily be altered in something that instead delivers bombs. Oh yeah, it would be, and that's part. We're actually more likely to get good drones because the U.S. military will be paying some of the research costs, so they've got nice drone robots and stuff. So yeah, yeah. So we have this enormous. Uh, entangled web of different uh, problems to handle and most technologies are um, what, what do you call it? Uh, double-edged? Dual, dual use. Dual use technologies. Yeah. yeah. 
which uh, I would somehow uh, hope for a greater amount of uh, foresight uh, in our choice of which uh, uh, technologies to prioritize uh, when we when we develop uh, technologies. Right now, for one analogy, uh, I sometimes uh, used to describe this. It's like uh, it's like we're sitting blindfolded in the car seat. Uh, and focusing entirely on pushing the gas pedal as hard as we can, uh, without uh, paying any attention to steering or to what happens outside the car. And I think we can improve uh, quite a lot in that. Uh, yeah. Person. Although I'm but kind of pessimistic, I'm kind of yeah. pessimistic about that coordination because there isn't like a single humanity. We have yeah. different competing entities. And no. we don't trust each other. We don't know what each other's doing. So no. it's hard to say slow down on developing AGI, slow down on developing genetic engineering, because the people who don't slow down have a massive advantage. Right. But if you get most countries on board, uh, uh, and you don't get North Korea on board, there's still a good hope that it will be possible to somehow contain uh, North Korea. I agree. Although, I mean, the, you know, climate change is something we can't mm -hmm. seem to coordinate on. Mm -hmm. I mean, my impression is that the elites, at least in the West, really do think climate change is a big problem, and economists know what to do. If you know, if you think climate change is a problem, you've got you have carbon taxes. Yes. It's easy, but that we yes. can't do that. No. And you know, car carbon taxes are an atomic power. That's that does it, but we can't do that. And because we don't have they, the global coordination. Yeah, and we can't even convince people who are worried about climate change that, you know, okay, these two things, that's what we need. You know, we, we need atomic power and carbon taxes. Instead, they want to do other things like bringing socialism, I don't know, you know, green new deal, stuff that just isn't likely to work, but that doesn't seem to matter. I mean, we don't know the solution to AI risk or genetic engineering. We do know the solution to climate change. We can't implement that solution. It's a very feasible solution, I mean, but... Yeah. We, we I'm not. I, I'm not giving up hope on that. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, the only reasonable uh, constructive assumption is is to to insist that if we want, we can get our act together. Let's try and, and do that and convince uh, as many decision makers as possible to, to get on board with this. Um, sometimes it seems like a place struggle. Yeah. I mean, this, what happened in the United States is just with the, the Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, we had the elites saying, you know, stay home, wear masks. And then suddenly we had these protests where people are gathering, often not wearing a mask, often singing and yelling. And it was yeah. like, well, this is the right thing to do now, they were saying. Yeah. And it's just like, whoa, you can't. You, know, you can't stand up to the current political pressures. Why should we trust you on anything anymore? But. Yeah. I haven't thought about this particular thing, but given the distance you have to people around you, probably uh, if gets, the situation gets worse if you start singing and yelling. Yeah, I I think we know from cases in like when they they found like places of churches where lots of people got it. This is, you know, before oh. they knew about it. They were clusters, and 
yes, singing appears to be a really, really bad thing to do in presence of COVID, but it's part of protest culture, that's, and so, you know. That's unfortunate, because singing is one of the most pleasurable human activities that we have. Well, for some people, not for yeah. me, actually, but I know it is certainly for a lot of people. Yeah. And, well, yeah. How do we end this on a more positive note? Well, uh, one way is the upside of AGI. It could, if it goes well, it could bring us utopia. It could end death and end involuntary suffering, make everyone spectacularly well off in the whole world, yes. allow us to colonize the universe. Yeah. And I, I look at it this way, even if it's likely AGI will kill me, right? If it kills me, maybe I lose 10 years of life. But if it goes well, I could live for millions of years. Yeah. So even if it's probably going to kill me, it's very unlikely to want to torture me. That's that's going to really weird situation. So it's you know it's a good bet. Ninety percent chance it gives you a painless death. Ten percent chance you get to live for a few million years, maybe even longer. That's a pretty good bet. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I was going to object that what you said was something a little bit of a pastor's wager. Yeah, except the probably I'm not going to one in a billion probabilities, you know. No, no, I, I think that uh, we have uh, we have a potentially uh, totally awesome, brilliant uh, future ahead of us, and it's very much worth uh, playing, uh, you know, fighting for this. Yeah, and, and if you look at what I. So what we've been talking about this last half hour or so uh, is uh, existential risk. Risks that are so bad that you can wipe out humanity. And the best book at present uh, about this... Have uh, uh, we made some connection here? Uh, a little bit, but why don't you just talk through it and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the best book on existential risk uh, right now is Toby Orbs. The Precipice, which uh, came out a few months ago. Yeah, uh, I read that. It's a, it's a good introduction yeah. to the topic. Yes, it's a wonderful introduction. Uh, and um, people like me, uh, who are like uh, well, um, uh, well brought up uh, statisticians and reluctant to uh, explicitly uh, set numbers to, to uh, probabilities of events that have never happened, uh, if you push me for what's the probability that we have an AGI breakthrough in the next 50 years, I would, uh, I would tend to say that, well, there's a reason that I'm going to blah, 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 blah. What Toby Orb says is that we need those numbers in order to make good decisions. So even though there's going to be a great deal of subjectivity in these numbers and, and uh, they can be exactly arbitrariness to some extent, we should still need to be like, do the best we can in these numbers. And then he systematically goes through what are the main existential risks. And he gets something that over the time scale of the next 100 years puts, puts the risk at 1 in 6. So like 17%. Is that that we develop a superintelligence or that it destroys it, us? No, it doesn't deal specifically with superintelligence, but the total risk oh, okay. uh, of, of working ourselves out. Uh, one in six over the next century. And that means that we have a five in six, uh, uh chance of, uh, surviving the next century, which is 
uh, a much um, more pleasant message compared to the calculus that, that, that you just offered. Yeah. And uh, if we get our act together, uh, we might, in a hundred years from now, uh, be in a much, much better situation to, to handle uh, various risks we're facing. There could be new risks as well. So currently, much focus is on how, uh, in the general public debate, the focus has been mostly on, on climate change and uh, nuclear war, uh, but uh, what the world uh, suggests, uh, which I think we you know about the global is that about um, um, artificial uh, pandemics and artificial intelligence are much more dominant risks here. And he adds a, a third um, third thing to the top of his list, the unknown unknowns. Because a uh, hundred years ago, uh, nobody had yet, maybe with some exception, but essentially nobody had considered the idea of uh, an AI catastrophe. Right. So, um, and, and, and similarly for other risks, there's no reason to think that uh, we don't have further risks uh, ahead of us to, to discover. Yeah, especially when we take into account the Fermi paradox. I mean, we look at the universe, <laughs> we don't see life there. So maybe it's just hard for it to arise, but it also could be civilizations like ours are really common, but something gets them. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit provocative of him to give a percentage on I think like a three percent probability or something like that, uh, on the event that we will uh wipe ourselves out for currently unknown reasons. Uh but I think that uh, if you take uncertainty seriously, then then you should be pretty possibility as well. Uh but the reason I brought up over here is the main reason is that he he this is Fairly good reasons for optimism, but, but this requires that we uh, get our lives together and start taking risks. And so, uh, you you also wrote a book on um, existential uh, risk, didn't you? Yes, in 2016, Here Be Dragons. Yes, um, sorry, what the title Here Be Dragons is the title. Yes, yes. And uh, while I don't put numbers on the different risks uh, the way it does. I would say that overall, uh, my conclusions 24 years ago are in reasonably good harmony with each, with what Olaf says now. Well, uh, thank you very much for being a, a guest on my podcast, and I, I hope you stay safe in Sweden. You too, Jim. I very much enjoyed that. You enjoyed our discussions. Yes, I did as well. Okay. Yeah. Bye bye. Take care. You too.